Well, brothers and sisters, we turn uh, back again to God's Word, leading us now from our sacrifice of dedication to the peace offering. And this was an offering uh, which um, the Old Testament worshiper would bring their animal, bring it to the temple, <clears throat> and the entire animal was not uh, consumed on the altar. Uh, a portion of it was offered uh, in worship to God, and then the rest was taken home. And the priest came home, and the family came home together, and they sat down, and they had a meal together, a fellowship meal. And so that is what this part of our service uh, is patterned after. And Joshua 1, verse 8, says to us this, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. And that might be prosperity and success physically. It could be that. It's not a promise of that uniformly. It is a promise of your spiritual prosperity. It is a promise of success in your relationship with God. And so as Brian Prouty comes and, and preaches the word uh, to us, pay attention. Hear the word of God. It is good, uh, good to be with you, and uh, Pam and I are looking forward to uh, strengthening our relationships and getting to know you uh, more and more. On a, on a quick personal note, uh, some of you may know that uh, our daughter Rose uh, recently gave birth to twins, and uh, Pam has been down there helping every day, and I, I suspect she might have a picture or two, um, but we are thankful for uh, God's blessings. On, uh, on another uh, uh, personal note, uh, this, this sermon for today uh, is really the, the, the first sermon that I ever preached uh, 20, 25 years ago, long before any consideration of ministry, but at a time when uh, I needed to be refreshed in the Lord. And I, I know that you folks have been going through the book uh, Gentle and Lowly. And let me just read a quick uh, portion from the introduction of that. It says, this book is written for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, the empty, those running on fumes, those whose Christian lives feel like constantly running up a descending escalator. Those who find ourselves thinking, how could I mess up this bad again? It is for that increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is wearing thin. This passage, the, the story of the prodigal son in Luke is written for you if that describes anything in your life. It is a passage written to call you home to the Lord Jesus. Please open your Bibles to uh, the book of Luke, chapter 15, and we will be reading uh, the first three verses and then skipping down and reading uh, 
11 through, through 24. This is God's word, God's perfect, infallible word. And God has given us his word that we might know him and that we might love him more. Hear God's word. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And then from verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Let us pray. Our Father, we come to you glad that we can call you Father. We come to you humbly knowing that you have redeemed us. That you even knit us together on our mother's womb. We come to you knowing that you know our thoughts even before we think them. And Lord, we can certainly say with David that such knowledge is too wonderful for us. Lord, we come in need. And we would ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you might take your word and that you might implant your word in our hearts. And Lord, may you guide us in worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Now, uh, in my day, of course, my day is some, same, same as some of your days, but in the uh, Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s, uh, conversion stories were very popular. Uh, the conversion story of uh, Nicky Cruz uh, comes to mind. He was a gang member who, uh, well, he became a, a Christian evangelist. And at least in the popular culture, uh, these conversion stories all took a form that went something like this. I was very bad, Jesus saved me, and now I'm very good. Now, don't get me wrong. <laughs> God is in the business of salvation. And sanctification always comes with salvation. And we can praise God that He does indeed change lives. But what do you do if your life does not fit the model? What do you, what do, you do if you've already fired your silver bullet of conversion? And you know, sins before conversion, those, those are easy, those are gone. But perhaps God converted you at a young age and then you hit some rebellious years. Perhaps in midlife, when you least expected it, troubles and temptations struck your life. And the question is, how can you ever face God again? Now Jesus answers that question, and he does right here in this parable. A parable typically called the parable of the prodigal son, but that's, uh, that's not the best name for it, because this is really a parable about God. It is about God the Redeemer. It is about God who saves his children. Now, you know, the word uh, parable means alongside. And the idea, Jesus is telling a parable, and you are to take the parable and hold it up alongside of your life and compare in your life to the story in the parable. And, you know, there's a benefit to that. When you see the wonderful goodness of our Savior, you will know that that goodness is for you too. Now, another thing about parables, parables always communicate in pictures. And so Jesus is going to tell us about ourselves in the picture of the prodigal son. He's going to tell us about God in a picture of the Father, and he's going to tell us about reconciliation. So the theme of this, uh, of this parable is that Jesus calls you home. He calls you home to life. And we will look at, uh, at this parable in, in three parts. Uh, God shows us who we really are. And Jesus shows us God for who he really is. And then he shows us reconciliation as it really is. Now, the first thing we need to see something about the setting of this parable. And so we look back at, at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So there are two groups. There are the sinners and there are the Pharisees. And it says the sinners were drawing near. 
They didn't observe Jesus from a distance. They wanted to be close to him. And it says that all the sinners were drawing near. No one was excluded. And right here, we are already close to the heart of this parable, that we can draw close to our Creator and our Savior. Now, on the other hand, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. That is, they were complaining about Jesus, and their charge against him was this. This man receives sinners and eats with them. You know, it's very interesting. There are a lot of words for receive, and the word here, receive, is, uh, well, it's a very warm, expectant kind of receiving into fellowship. It is the word that Paul uses when he uh, tells the Philippians to receive Epaphroditus. In other words, receive him as a brother into your fellowship. And the Pharisees recognize that Jesus receives sinners. And what's worse, they say, and he eats with them. And at that time, to eat with someone was to join in to close fellowship with them. And of course, it, it's the same today. You open your home to uh, friends, to family, in close fellowship. This man receives sinners and eats with them. This is the charge against Jesus. And so Jesus tells a parable to answer this charge. The parable comes in three parts. A lost lamb, a lost coin, and a lost son. And we will focus on the lost son. Look with me to verse 11. And he said, that is Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, now think about this request. Think about what this request would mean. You know, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. The, the son is basically saying, you know, I wish you were gone, Father. I wish you were out of the picture. I, w- I just want what's coming to me, and I want it now. You know, it's quite a, it's quite a brash statement. I, I know several uh, multi-generational farmers up in the Wellington area. And, you know, a request like this is just not done. It represents a tragedy and a breakdown in the family of extreme proportions. It would have been, especially among the Jews, unthinkable that a younger son would ask his father to pass to him his share of the property. You know, you consider the value that God placed and that the Jews placed on passing uh, property from generation to generation. And this would not have only been a tragedy in the family, but in the entire community. Now, why does verse 12 say... Uh, the portion or the property that falls to me rather than my inheritance. 
And it is because the word used there is not inheritance. It is the word, the simple word, wealth. The son is essentially saying, my portion of the money. Now, in case we were thinking that perhaps the, the son was asking for some responsibility, you know, give me my portion so, so I can manage the farm. Uh, this takes away all doubt. He just wanted the cash and to get out of there. And then it says that the father divided his property between them. Only the word translated property here is a very different word. It is a word that means livelihood. In other words, the son just asked for the cash, but the father had to distribute his means of livelihood. He would have had to sell a portion of the farm a portion of his means for making a living for the family. And we can see the shame that this would bring upon the father in the community. You know, you can almost, uh, almost hear the gossip in, in the town. Did you hear about that son and, and that father? Because it says he distributed his livelihood to his son. Everyone listening would have known that here was a breakdown in the family. The son rejected his father. The son valued his father's wealth more than he valued the father himself. And worst of all, he broke his father's heart. You know, it's, it's interesting. You don't see it in your Bible. But in the Greek, it reads, The father. There is no possessive pronoun. The son is not owning his father as his own father. It's simply the father. Simply the means of getting what I want and getting out of here. The son disowned his father in every way. Now what do you suppose the Pharisees would have thought of this son? Uh, It's clear. They would have considered this son a sinner of the highest degree, a disgrace to the Jewish people, a Hebrew young man who would do such a thing. Now the point of Jesus describing the son in this way is to give us a picture of our own hearts in rebellion to God. To reject our God is to say, I have my own ideas about life. I don't need your word. I don't need your Savior. I don't need you. Just give me a nice world without trouble and I'll take what I want. You know, isn't this really the, the sense of our culture in this day? You know, just, just give me a world, a nice world to live in and uh, leave out the Creator. And so Jesus asks us to examine our hearts. Now, if we look at verse 13, it says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. 
He gathered all. He converted the property to cash. You know, not only did this son have wanton disregard for his father, but his mother and his brother also depended on the livelihood of the farm. He burned all of his bridges. And it says he went into a far country. He left the land. And, you know, this was no ordinary land. This was the land that God had given to the Jews. It was the promised land. You know, it's, it's one thing to be exiled. And at the time when Jesus was speaking, the Jews still remembered their exile into Babylon. But for a Hebrew young man in the prime of life to exile himself to a foreign land, well, it's just not done. It says that he wasted Literally, he scattered his wealth in loose, reckless living. You know, not only did he have disregard for his father, but he had disregard for his father's wealth. The wealth that he had received, the livelihood from his father. And at this point, the son had no money, no livelihood, and no home. And it is precisely at this time that famine arose in that country. And the son is in need. But of course, the famine is not the problem. The son himself is the problem. The son is in need, but his pride is not broken. And can we note here that pride is the hardest thing in life to break People will suffer to poverty and to great trouble before they will let their pride be broken. Consider your own heart. Is there any pride that will not be broken? A streak of pride that perhaps shows up in family disagreements. A streak of pride that will keep you far from your heavenly father in the far country and even far from close relationships in your life. Now finally it says in verse 15 that he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. He joined himself. Actually, this is in the passive voice. He was joined. In other words, he had no choice in the matter. He was joined to a citizen who sent him out to feed pigs. And what do we suppose the Pharisees would think at this point? You know, in Deuteronomy 15.6, it says, For the Lord your God will bless you, just as he promised You shall lend to many nations. You shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. You see, it was a humiliation for the Jews to be under Roman rule at this time. But here was a Hebrew young man, again in the prime of life, exiling himself, sinking to serve a foreigner, and sinking even further than that to serve pigs. 
a hated animal. This was the lowest of the low. You know, I, I think about the, uh, the sinners listening to this story and seeing the picture of this young man and thinking, you know, I'm, I'm pretty bad, but here, here's a sinner right here. Here's a man that has gone so far as to bring shame to his family and reduce defeating pigs. You know, I think the Jesus painted this, one of the reasons Jesus painted this son as so bad, sometimes in life we wonder, in our own life, is there any way out? Is there any way out? I've sunk pretty low. Is there a way out in my life? And Jesus is going to show you that indeed, there is a way out through the Savior. And so it is precisely at this point in the story that God enters. And, God, and Jesus shows us God for who he really is. If we pick up in verse 17, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. The son decides to go home. Now think about this homecoming. What would you expect? You know, one of my my favorite books on this parable was written by Kenneth Bailey. He was a uh, professor at uh, a university in uh, Lebanon. And he, he often asked the locals, how should this father receive this son home? And the answer was universal. Leave him in the street. In other words, tit for tat. Humiliation for humiliation. Abandonment for abandonment. And that's kind of a natural human response. But it's not God's response. For this is no ordinary father. And so we see what happens in verse 20. It says, He arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You know, first we see that the father had compassion. You see the father's heart of compassion focused directly on his son. And it says that his father ran to him, fell on his neck and kissed him. You know, men at that time did not run. 
They, they wore robes to keep cool. And, and it would be an embarrassment and a shame to lift up those robes enough to run. It was just not done. You know, even today, uh, men often don't run. If you've been to the airport and you've uh, observed families reuniting, you know, it's usually the wives and the children that do the, that do the running. And, uh, well, we might learn something from that, us men. You know, when my, when my children were younger, one of my favorite times of the day was, was coming home from work. Because my kids would literally burst out of the door and they would come running, Daddy's home, Daddy's home, Daddy's home. And I would get down and they would jump and, and hug me. And you know, in that moment, when my kids ran to greet me, I knew that I was loved. And I knew that it is good. It's good to be loved. And it's good to be a daddy in my house. And this son, when he came home and his father lifted his robes and ran to greet him and hugged him and kissed him. You see, in that moment, the son knew that he was loved. And he knew that it's good. Oh, it is good to be loved. And it's good to be a son in the Father's house. Now, can you picture God? And make no mistake, the Father is God. Can you picture God running to greet you, to welcome you home? Even while you're wearing rags, smelling like pigs. That He would run and hug you and kiss you. And oh, it is good to be loved by the Creator of all the universe. It is good to be a child of God. And oh, it is good to be loved. You see, this is the picture that Jesus wants you to have in your mind of returning home to God. How can you ever face God again? Jesus says, I want to tell you about my Father and how my Father receives sinners who return home to Him. I want you to see how unlike the world my Father is. I want you to see how great of love is there for you. You know, everything that the Father did spoke of restoration. A ring on His finger, the best robe on His uh, shoes on his feet. You see, and these all speak of restoration. And you remember the charge. This man receives sinners and he eats with them. Jesus says, let me tell you about how, how we eat with sinners. It says the father kills the fatted calf. He throws a feast and a celebration for the whole community. Come, Enjoy and celebrate. See, this is the picture of God rejoicing over a sinner who returns home. Now, what do you picture when you picture God? Do you picture God saying, Who do you think you are? I know what you've done. 
You might be able to hide it on earth, but I can see the heart. Does God stand back waiting for you to prove yourself? And of course you know that you never can. It's not within you. What are you supposed to do when you begin to see sin in your heart more clearly? When you have to face your failure. Now, I've got news for you. Every one of us deserves all the judgment that we can imagine. And more. Our sin is indeed an evil thing. And so we need to be clear. God does not wink at sin. He does something infinitely better. He redeems the sinner to himself. He casts all your sins upon Christ who condemned sin in the flesh. On Christ who died in your place. Who died the death that you deserve. Who set you free from sin and death. Scripture says, though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. In other words, there is no sin so dark that God cannot forgive There is no sin so entwined in life that God will not forgive. Now one of the reasons why Jesus painted the Son as so bad is so that he could paint the Father as so good. As bad as this Son was bad, and you know, trust me, the people listening thought he was pretty bad. As bad as he was, so much greater was the goodness of the Father's love. And so the truth of the gospel is this. Christ receives sinners. Even sinners like you and me. And the point is this. God loves you not because of who you are or anything that you've done, but because of who He is. And here's the heart of how we can live the Christian life on this earth. We must see God for who He really is. Psalm 63, verse 3 says, Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Now finally in this story, Jesus shows us reconciliation as it really is. And if we go back to verse 17... It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. It says he came to himself. It means he began to see things clearly. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? We notice that he begins to see his father's generosity. And bread enough to spare, it is a picture of overflowing Abundance. And the son begins to realize that this abundance characterizes everything about his father. How he treats his servant. How he treats his son. And the son saw that his father was a good and a generous man. And so he got up and he went home. 
Think about how blinded this son's heart was while he was at home, while his heart was in rebellion, while his pride was not yet broken. He couldn't see past himself. He saw what he wanted. He didn't even see the goodness of his father. But seeing his father rightly, it says, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. It says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. You know, these are the hardest words in life to say. I have sinned. I am the one that has done wrong. I deserve only punishment. You notice that it says, I have sinned against heaven. He sees that sin is always against. It is against God. It is against your neighbor. And the son is willing to accept the consequences for his sin. He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. He didn't come home with pride. He didn't come home with a chip on his shoulder. Yeah, I sinned. No big deal. He got up and he went home. His repentance led to action. You know, in uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Scripture tells us that God's goodness is meant to lead us to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You see, this young man saw himself rightly. He saw God rightly. And so he cast his very life into the care of his father. Just make me like one of your hired servants. This is the connection between faith and repentance. As he saw his father rightly, it turned his heart to repentance, to get up and to go home. Now there's an amazing thing that happens in the Greek here. The possessive, when he comes home, when the son comes home, the possessive pronoun returns. It's no longer the father, it's now his father. And in verse 20, when it says, he came to his father, it is even stronger. There is a reflexive pronoun that should be translated, he came to his own father. The father, to his father, to his own father. It is very personal. This was his own his own father. In our lives, God has designed that his goodness lead us to repentance. That this distant thinking of God is out there becomes God, my own father. You know, we, I didn't leave time to talk about the older son but if you, if you read this on your own, you'll see the contrast. 
There is pride in the heart of the older son. Pride that was never broken. And so in the end, he refused to come in and celebrate. And the warning is this, do not let pride dwell in your heart. Now, let me just conclude with this. Do you need to come to yourself? Perhaps God has brought you low in life for this very purpose, that he might summon you home. You know, when I, when I work with men having trouble with alcoholism and such, you know, what am I supposed to tell men who have ruined their life? Perhaps who have ended up on the street. Who have found sin in their lives. Perhaps who have been told you're on your own now. You see, Jesus wants them and you and I to know how our Father in Heaven receives sinners who return home to Him. He runs to them. He loves them. He throws a celebration. You know, I I heard this quote from a pastor named Brad Bigby, and, and I think it applies. Douglas Copeland was a successful novelist who wrote a book titled Life After God. It was written about a generation raised without God and about his own experience in that generation. He says, I think... I'm a broken person. I seriously question the road my life has taken. I endlessly rehash the compromises I've made in my life. I have an insecure job in an immoral corporation so I don't have to worry about money. I've put up with halfway relationships so as not to worry about loneliness. And as he describes life without God, he says this, Now here is my secret, and I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever again achieve. So I pray you are in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is this. I need God. I'm sick, and I can no longer make it alone. And the secret of your life is that you need God. If your pride keeps you from God, if your shame keeps you from God, if you think you must somehow prove yourself before you can enjoy the embrace of God, if you are in the far country, and perhaps some of us are in the far country even though we sit right here in these seats, you need God. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. Now perhaps you are here today and you know in your heart that you have never come to Jesus as Savior. Can I just say that God is so good that even one day apart from Him is too long. Let God grab your heart and draw you to Himself in humble faith and repentance. See God rightly and let Him call you home.
father said, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would draw us home to yourself, wherever we are in life, that you would close any gap between us, that we would know your embrace and your love, and that we might find strength for life, that we might find hope for the future, that we might know the assurance of your promise of eternal life. For Lord, you are good and perfect in all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.